friends, this is Jenny from Narrate. This past weekend, we started a new series titled With Words, a conversation on our relationships and the influence they have in our lives. Enjoy. So let me ask you this. How, 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 do, you, how, do, how do you count your blessings? I know that's kind of old person language, and you're like, if you're less than 35, I just made myself sound really old. I also know it's kind of churchy, but, but here's what I mean, and I think this is what, what I want to dig into this morning, is if you were to look around and try to make sense of what are the real sources of joy in your life, what are the real sources of influence and power at work? Like, if you were to try to make sense of, like, what, what counts? And if everything was else was stripped away, what would you want to be the last things to go? Uh, wh- where, where do you look? Uh, to, to whom do you look? You know, this, when I was 25, my, my friend Vern, who I was on staff with, he invited me to this little training conference thing. I don't remember what it was called. I call it the Post-it Note Timeline Experience. Uh, it was actually pretty fruitful and fun. It was the, uh, the opportunity to, it was one of those conferences. This was in the purpose-driven life days, you know, when you could buy pens and notepads and books and tattoos and everything purpose-driven life. But this was born of that same kind of mentality where you are trying to make sense of who you are and how you're wired and what they did at this conference was they started by giving us a whole bunch of those little yellow post-it notes, the miniature ones. This is actually when I discovered my love for mind mapping and post-it notes and non-connected thoughts that I don't have to connect linearly, uh, at least initially. And what they did is after initial introduction, they said, okay, so what we want you to do is take the next 10 minutes and write down on individual post-it notes, just kind of create this pile, as many kind of major life events as you can name or identify. So the idea was... Uh, that, that you don't, it's not complete sentences, it's kind of bullet points, but major things as you look back and go, this was a big part of my life and a big part of who I am, write them down. And so the idea was after 10 minutes, you had 15, 20, 25, 30 of these little yellow post-it notes with these types of terms that would be completely nondescript and mean nothing to anybody else, but to you they made perfect sense because they captured specific experiences and moments and relationships and things like that. And then there was some more kind of instruction time, and then they they gave us these pink ones or red ones. You know, those post-it notes, are they pink or are they red? We don't know. Uh, and, and they said, now what we want you to do is go back through the pile and identify the ones that when they originally occurred, it, it, was, it was pain. It, it was painful. It involved suffering, like perhaps a divorce or, or a death or a car accident. Like the things that you wrote down that now you're going, that was a big part of who I am today. At the time, it hurt. Put, so crumple up the, one that, the yellow one and put it on red. Then they gave us, I think it was orange, and they said, okay, so what are the like four, five, six principles that, that are really important to you? Like the, the kind of isms, the, the, the values that really drive your existence, you know? So for me, it would be something like the daily leads to the dream. Like, and so you wrote those down. Then, of course, this was over a day or two, I can't recall. Then they gave us a, a half of a piece of poster board. And they said, okay, leave the top section blanks, like the size of a post-it note. But then they had to start putting them in chronological order, from top to bottom, left to right. So you'd put these post-it notes in, in, uh, in columns and kind of left to right, make sense of them. And, and so it was a very dynamic process, because along the way, of course, over the course of the day, you're kind of going, ah, I don't think that one's as big a deal as I thought, and you're crumpling it up, and then you're remembering something else. And it's this very uh, kind of beautiful minds, kind of moving thing, where you're trying to get it in chronological order, but chronological order is not totally the point. Then they said, okay, so now put it in, uh, they now identify the seasons of your life. So the idea was, as you look, what are the three or four or five or however many, like these major episodes, scenes, seasons of your life. And, and then you put a, those on a green one, I think it was, and you put that at the very top. And then you'd put the ones underneath it that correspond with that in the next season, the next season. Does this make any sense at all? You should try it. It's actually a pretty fun little exercise. 
that was the first time that I started to think about relationships in the terms that I want to challenge us to think about them this morning. Because what occurred to me, and, and if I recall correctly, I wasn't the only one. What began to occur to me as I did this was that every one of my seasons pivoted on a relationship. That when I looked at, like, I went out of this season into this season, whether, whether it was going from good to good or good to bad or bad to good, whatever, like, it, it was, oh, there was always a new relationship that it pivoted on. And so my parents, of course, was a season, and, and so was their divorce. And then so was the, the meeting of a guy named Aaron, who was a few years older than me and kind of a big brother mentor to me. And then so was the meeting of the Frickles, who were the family that really introduced to me the idea of a daily relationship with Jesus. And then I met Fred, who I reference often. And then I met my friends, Vern and Brian. And so there were these five seasons for me. Every one of them was tied to a relationship. And that's kind of what I want to get us thinking about this morning. What if, what if as you ask that question, in fact, it's, this occurred to me for the first time this last Christmas. I was um, terrible at writing uh, personal letters and thank you notes and cards. Uh, and yet this year I found the energy to write one uh, to the council and to the staff. And it occurred to me, wait a minute, it was the first time that the phrase in my head formed that like, I, I think I count God's blessings in my life to the, to the people that are in my life. Like the most tangible way for me to see God's graces and when I look back and I see, wow, were it not for this person or these people, I don't know where I would be today. I know I'd be in a different spot. Henry Cloud has written a book and I love to plagiarize his stuff. And by plagiarize, I mean plagiarize. Uh, he, he's a Christian psychiatrist who, psychologist, excuse me, uh, which means he can tell you your problem, but he can't give you meds, right? That's the... Um, I don't know if that's funny or not, but I thought it was. So he, the great thing about him, I, I, I just go like read everything he's written because the great thing about him is he's a psychologist and, so, and he's a Christ follower, but you don't have to be a psychologist to understand his stuff. It's very accessible and you don't have to be a Christ follower to appreciate it. It's accessible that way too. One of his more recent books, I think it's, he's got another one since. So I got to plagiarize faster. Like we need to speed up the train. Uh, is a book called The Power of the Other. And in there, he makes some observations that I'd like to kind of start uh, or maybe turn into a question. The, the, what jumps off the page is really the, the thesis of his work is what if, what if you don't have any power over whether or not, you don't have any decision over whether or not people have power over your lives? What if we don't have a choice as to whether or not people have influence in your life and who you're becoming and where you're headed? What if they do? And that aspect is unavoidable. And therefore, what if the only option we really have is Who? what type of relationships we have, and therefore the type of influence they have. Now, one of his driving metaphors in the book involves uh, a brother-in-law in his life who was a Navy SEAL. Uh, he's actually passed. He passed. Uh, he, he died in action. Uh, but I don't know about you. If you've, do, do you kind of nerd out when you get next to a Navy SEAL or someone with that kind of training and like, just kind of want to ask lots and lots of questions? I, I've got a cousin who married an, an F-16 pilot. And I used to think I wanted to be a pilot, and then I realized you needed nerve to be a pilot, and so I'm not a pilot. I just like pilots. And he's this super fascinating guy to, to pick his brain, and it's to the point in the relationship I see him like twice a year, and he's, he mostly is annoyed by my questions. He's like, Adam, this is a family hangout, and you're just interviewing me. But I just, it's fascinating. So we were at a wedding a couple years ago, uh, and it was, I think it was my stepbrother's wedding, and so I had a, those flower things that poke you, and you always got to find someone that can put them on, and then they, is it, what is that thing called? A boutonniere? Okay, I said corsage last. Is that what... Did women wear corsage? Okay, so maybe I was wearing a corsage. Just, just so that, we were sitting at dinner, and I don't remember how it came up, but someone said, uh, hey, you should, you should eat the berries. And there were these berries on there. And, 
And my, my cousin's husband, his name's David, he, he's like, I, I'd never eat those berries. And I had one of those rare moments of self-awareness where I was like, wait a minute. He didn't just say that because they, they don't taste good. Like, right, because you probably heard the stories. Like Air Force pilots, they go through this training where they have to learn how to live off of nothing for a few days if they end up behind, behind, behind enemy lines. So here's my chance. You know, I was like, so I said, why wouldn't you eat the berries? And he said, because they're red. I was like, I didn't know that you were, had such disdain for the color red. And he said, no, no. In the, in the berry world, it's far more probable that that berry is poisonous than that it's good. I would never eat a red berry. And now I'm thinking, he has training on what to live if he's behind enemy lines and he's lost in the woods. Not that I ever think about such things, but I wonder what he would do if he was. And so I said, so what would you do? And he said, I would dig a hole. And I thought, man, I thought you had this training. You'd given up too quickly. <laughs> so what, what would you do with the hole? He said, I would eat everything that I found in the hole. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean you would eat it? Like, what, what would you eat? Worms, grubs, roly-polies? That's the stuff I would eat in that circumstance. And I thought, that is disgusting. Why would you do that? And he said, because that, that's your safest source of food. And I said, you could live on that? And he said, well, it's not like you're going to be dancing in the streets. But yeah, you could, you could live off of that. And then he said, and if you can find ants? Mm, and he like got excited about eating ants. <laughs> and I'm trying to picture, like, can you picture eating an ant? It would be like, like a game show, right? Because you put it in your mouth and it hides between your molars and then you open your mouth and it just sounds disgusting, doesn't it? He said, actually, uh, this last year I was on a hike with some other uh, pilots and we were with our wives and we came across this anthill and without even thinking about it, we nerded out and we went over to this anthill because they were big ants and we just started popping ants and our wives were like, what are you doing? He said, here's the thing. You get them between your fingers and if they're big enough, you squeeze them and you like pop them into your mouth. He said, they taste just like lemon heads. So you, sh- you should try it. See, and then you throw the carcass in for a little bit of protein or fiber to go with it. Uh, the, the, I also have a mutual friend who was deep behind enemy lines in the first Gulf War, and he once told a friend of mine that if you're ever stranded in the desert in you know, Iraq or someplace, so in case you end up there and you find yourself dying of thirst, he said one of the smartest things you could do is find and kill a rabbit and eat its eyeballs. Because apparently the eyeballs of a rabbit are packed full of electrolytes. So if you're not interested in Jesus, at least we're giving you some survival tips this morning. He said, so he nerds out like we all nerd out when you get next to people who are insiders, right? And, and he was nerding out on his brother-in-law one time. And his brother-in-law said, listen, what you have to understand is when our feet hit the ground, whether we've just jumped out of an airplane or swam across, swam ashore, having jumped out of a boat, when our feet hit the ground, we are trained to very quickly ask three questions. He says, where am I? Where's my adversary? And where's my buddy? And what his brother-in-law went on to explain is, listen, I understand you think that us seals are kind of invincible and we can do anything, but the, the ability to answer that last question is everything. Where's my buddy? Now listen, uh, psychologists, when you dig into this, they'll, they'll say that there are about four types of relationships we can have and only one that really gets us to where we're trying to go. But it strikes me that it's not just a psychologist thing. That the scriptures, and sometimes we see God as this very controlling, very imposing kind of figure telling us who we can and can't be friends with, who we can and can't go into deep relationship with. The scriptures do this over and over and over. In fact, one place to look is Psalm 1, and I'd like to just jump there. If you're someone who does chair time and gets up in the morning and reflects and you're kind of going, I'm not sure what to read, Psalm 1 might be a great place to park for a couple mornings. And if you're someone that's like, I don't know how to read the Bible, Psalm 1 might be a great place to start. Listen... Listen to the way this book, this whole 150 psalms starts here. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. 
Now notice first there's a progression to the relationship, right? We're walking, we're standing, now we're, we're seated. It's this warning, like being careful about the types of relationship we have. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and, and who meditates on it day and night? Now, this could look relationship-less, but we have to remember, this isn't a day where you had the Bible on your iPhone or one in your backpack or 16 of them on your bookshelf. This is a day where, where if you were fortunate, your community had one scroll, a few pieces, maybe the Torah, probably only the Torah. And so therefore, even to have relationship with the text the way they're describing, it, it's all predicated upon connection within, with people who are connected to the text. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Notice this, this doesn't say that hard times will never come, but the presence of a certain kind of relationship will allow you to thrive through it. I love what Dallas Willard says in the very end of the Sermon on the Mount when he notes, remember Jesus says that, that if you follow his teaching, you'll have the kind of life where you built it on the rock. And Dallas Willard's kind of paraphrase of that is that, that if we're following Jesus, we can have the kind of life that with, can withstand all of life's storms. It's real similar here. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, chaff is not what happens between your thighs when you're on a long hike. That's not, that's chaff. Chaff. <laughs> I have so many tangents I could take right now. Uh, and you could. So you could tell stories about your chafing experiences. Chat, it's, like the, it's like a dandelion. It's something that is just, boom, it disappears. It's like your lawn clippings when we used to have lawn, when it wasn't winter forever. That's, that's chaff. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, we have to be careful here, too, because the Old Testament knows nothing of, of, of our understanding here of judgment. This whole idea of, like, where worms never die and fire never ceases, that's not the idea. What the Old Testament knows is a life that is or isn't productive. The Old Testament, th these guys aren't thinking hell in the terms you might often try to avoid thinking about or whatever that conversation involves. They're talking about the quality and the impact of a person's life. And what they're saying is it's all tied to certain kinds of relationships. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, here, here, here's one way to think about this. It strikes me that if you want, you could see this text as an imposing threat. And maybe this was used on you by your parents. Maybe this is the way uh, your, your culture and in, in past seasons of your life use texts like this. You could see this as a threatening God going, you better get relationships right or your life is going to stink. But couldn't you also see it as a promise, as an invitation, as a God who is going, listen, 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 I made you to want something from life. I made you for joy that's not circumstantial. Here's the secret. Who you're in relationship with. And see, it strikes me, if all this is true, then the question becomes, like, how do we make sure that we have the right who's in our life, right? Like, not Dr. Seuss, not those guys, but the right kinds of who's. Dr. Cloud does something with the whole idea of four relationships. He calls them the four corners of relationship. And part of what I like about him is he boils down hard psychology in ways that um, unintelligent people like myself can really comprehend it and grasp it. He calls it the four corners of relationship. Kind of tangible. Corner one, he says, is disconnected. Now, here's the danger of, of, of thinking about disconnected relationship. It implies loneliness, and it really has nothing to do with proximity to people. There's an emotional loneliness that is not tied directly to being around people. Many CEOs and leaders 
are very connected with people and yet very lonely. In fact, Dr. Cloud did kind of an informal survey because he's this guru of coaches and companies all over the world, and he made a habit of asking them, do you have a relationship where people can ask you the hard stuff? 80% of them said no. He would then follow with, do you have a relationship that, that just feels dedicated to your mutual growth? Again, nearly 80% said no. I don't. The reality of being disconnected, it doesn't mean you're never around people. What it means is that you've somehow lost one of two abilities. And maybe it's specific to a relationship. Maybe it's a pattern in life. But those two things are the ability to give and the ability to receive. That that, that there's this exchange of interdependency. Narcissism, of which I am quite prone. Narcissism lends itself to being disconnected. Why? Because you have the capacity to think about yourself, care about yourself, talk about yourself, and you lack the capacity of empathy and interest and listening and actually caring about somebody else. Self-hatred, whatever you might call it, lends itself to this. Why? Because you care deeply about others. You just do. It's what causes you to have so much confidence in Jesus because he's led you there. And yet you don't see yourself as at all valuable or worthwhile. And so you have the ability, the inability to give. It's also possible to be in a relationship that has turned a corner to disconnection. I love the way Dr. Cloud, though, it's a little bit heavy, frankly. Look at this next slide. Listen to the way he describes that. He says, to have relationship with corner one people is to feel unheard, misunderstood, unsupported, and generally without interdependency. He goes on to say it's brutal, it's lonely, And here's what you already know if you're in a relationship like this. It's unsustainable. You can't stay long-term in this kind of relationship, or at least not without finding outlets. Now, one of the things that for me helps to go like, okay, so as a person who's trying to understand life through the narrative of the text, who in the text kind of adds dimension to these issues? And one of them that comes to mind for me, dare we say anything negative about him, because he rightly so is so celebrated, is Moses. Now, now hear me here, but Moses, the story we get in Exodus is Moses developed a passion for a people who were enslaved to a nation. He decided he wanted to do something about it. He execute, formed a plan. He executed his plan. And after he committed that murder in hopes, Stephen tells us in Acts, in hopes, to, in hopes of sparking a rebellion, who followed his lead? No one. Which as a strategic thinker, as someone who's ever built teams or led teams or tried to make anything happen, what does that tell us about Moses' leadership style? He was completely isolated. He, he did not trouble himself with going, hey, this might be a bad idea. What do you think about ales for trails? Like, what do you think? He didn't do that. He was just alone. And when he left Egypt and had to run for his life, who went with him? He had no band. Everything was in his head. Like a lot of leaders, he cared deeply about a cause, but he apparently, at least it seems it's possible that he was emotionally disconnected from the very people that he was doing life with. Another one that comes to mind for me is Judas. Now, the Judas that we talk the most about is the one we find in Matthew 26. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? The him being Jesus, not a book of songs. They counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Jesus, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, did you know that many theologians, some theologians, many might be manipulative, some theologians, they actually think that Judas 
His intention wasn't to sell Jesus out, but to force his hand. That what some people, when they study Judas, they, they think, well, listen, he believed the same thing about Jesus as everybody else. That, that, that the Messiah was coming to set up a political, physical kingdom. And he was kind of sick of talking about all this kind of abstract, kind of ethereal stuff. And so Judas developed this idea that he was going to force Jesus' hand by, by bringing this lynch mob to him. And he kind of tricked them. He got money because his expectation, some believe, is when, when people showed up with handcuffs and clubs and spears and whatever else they showed up with, Jesus would step into the, the phone booth and take off the nerdy tie and take off off the white shirt and reveal himself to be the mighty Superman and get on with the show. And of course, as we'll talk about on Easter, what, what Judas learned the hard way is that Jesus' kingdom was of a completely different brand. But again, Judas was a part of the disciples for, for three years, including the women that seemed to be a part of Jesus' very close-knit circle. Judas spent three years in community with, I don't know, 20 or so people? Who... Who knew about what he was doing? It stands out to me that Jesus at one point was like, hey, so one of you is going to betray me. And they were all like, they weren't like, oh, it'll be Judas. Because I had that talk with him last night. They were like, who, 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 who would that be? You know, we give Peter a hard time because Peter was always saying stupid stuff and stepping out of line. But I wonder if he's not a better example of health because at least he was saying what he was thinking. He wasn't the type of person to walk into a meeting and have all kinds of thought and then say nothing. And then when the meeting was over, pick up the phone and call somebody, or worse yet, still say nothing. Judas seems to be the one who internalized it all. Maybe his story is a reminder that that's a toxic path. Now, corner two, shifting gears, is is what Cloud calls bad connection. A bad connection. And I want to be really clear here because this, this one could become toxic in its own right. A bad connection is not predicated upon a connection with a bad person. A bad connection is, requires that you have the type of connection that is driven by they make you feel bad. Here, here's the way Henry Cloud defines it. He says, go to that next slide, connection. It's a connection, a preoccupation, or a pull towards a person who has the effect of making you feel bad or not good enough in some way. This can be a spouse, a lover, a boss, a coach, a friend, a parent, a sibling. The only common denominator here is they have the ability to control your behavior by making you feel terrible. And somehow you come back for that. Why? Well, psychologists, some use the analogy of your cell phone. What's the one time in your life when you turn off your phone? Is it when you get on an airplane? I'm never turning it off. I don't want to crash. I'll turn it off. Okay, I'm I'm abiding by the rules. What's the first thing that happens on the airplane when the back tires hit the runway? (laughs) And what does your phone say? It's searching for connection. It's searching for connection. The way some psychologists talk about this is that you're built for relationship. You might have some relationships where disconnection wins the day. You'll find some kind of connection, even if it's negative and toxic. You know, I want to be really careful here because in my life, I can see a lot of fruit uh, from from fundamentalist Christianity. There's a lot of good things in my life. But I got to be honest, I I constantly find myself in conversation with people. It's becoming a theme. Constantly is a a vague word. I've had five conversations in the last six weeks with with different people who, who they are so sick of a system that controls behavior through negative emotion 
that we're meeting because they think they're not a Christ follower anymore. They're holding out hope that there's a way to hold on to Jesus, but it's easier for them to get rid of the whole system than it is to continue to abide in a system that controls through negativity and shame. You know, when we ask ourselves the question, who embodies this type of relationship, it strikes me that we're right at the heart of Jesus' fundamental passion, which was religiosity. The Pharisees, who were not supposed to read about and go them, were supposed to read about and go me. This was the system that Jesus seems to me was trying to deconstruct. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So like they're, in the, they're in the Oval Office. They have the pulpit. They've got the microphone. They're the ones with the seminary degrees. So, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Listen to verse 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. It strikes me that Jesus' issue was with a system that controlled people's behavior through negative emotion, weighing them down. Listen, I, I, I have no doubt that our own approach here uh, will have its own toxicity present. I think those of us who raise our kids here, they'll have to go through their own Christian detox to go, like, there's all the stuff I learned at Narrate growing up there. I have, not for a second do I think our system is any way perfect. But I do think a major part of our role in this community is to beg people to rethink Jesus on the grounds that he doesn't control people through shame and hatred. But you still might be in a relationship not with religion, but with another person on these exact same grounds. Listen, listen, Paul even steps into this. Listen to Romans 2, where it seems to me Paul, and maybe this is part of what got him killed, is his attempts to deconstruct a Judaism that was designed through this kind of control. In Romans 2, listen to what he says. He says, you... Therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. In other words, he's saying, how dare you call other people out because you all have the same problem. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So we're not talking about a God who, who doesn't call true, true, and false, false, and healthy, healthy, and toxic, toxic. He's just going, God's altogether different, and, <clears throat> and it just so happens you're not him. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Notice what torques God here isn't the brokenness. It's the shaming and the control. It's the calling out of someone else's under the guise that you don't have it. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Watch this. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul's going, wait, wait, wait a minute. Do, have you forgotten that it was God's kindness that led you there? Not, not some kind of religious shame where they make you feel really bad and really dependent upon some kind of system. There's a bad connection. The, the, the third corner uh, is, and this one, I worked all week to memorize this and I just couldn't get it done. Uh, the corner three he calls a seductively false good connection. Now this one's tricky. Because what's pointed out here is psychologically, the first two are downers. They make you feel bad. You're lonely. You're blah, blah, blah. Eventually, you go looking for what? Something fun, something that lifts you up. A seductively false good connection is a connection where you get a hit, where you get hormonal, where something kind of drives you, where suddenly you're excited. But the reality is it's not healthy. Maybe it's not healthy contextually because of where you're at in life. Maybe it's not healthy uh, because it's a substance. 
But the, the key here is it's all good and no bad, no correction. No challenge. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about maybe the real challenge of a corner for healthy relationship is the ability to disagree. One of the questions Cloud asks is, you want to know if a relationship's healthy? You just ask, what happens in that relationship when there's disagreement? See, in this, these relationships, it's all about blowing sunshine you know where. And it can also happen with a substance. This is where we become addicted, especially us type A high drivers. Things like, go ahead to that next slide. Sex and food, beer and wine, drugs, hobbies, awards, accolades, trophies, good revenues, wins. It's all about, I only want the positive. Listen, I, I, I'm with you. It's one of the great struggles in my life is h- how do you continue to leave yourself vulnerable to the negative, not just the positive? You know, that, that there's research, and, and I've got an Evernote where I'm just kind of compiling stuff, and someday I hope we'll do a series on this. There's research that says one of the negative trademarks of millennials, and, and I don't know about you, but I kind of feel myself at that intersection, even though I don't show up on it in the whole birth order or the age of time of birth thing. One of the real negative trademarks of millennials is their inability to receive criticism. Why? Well, because it's been ribbons and rewards, and failure is not a part of our system. Which means that relationally, you're prone to gravitate to people who only give you the good and never the bad. And the problem with that is there's some some stuff there that could be corrected, but we don't want to hear it. Now, the last one is corner four. And actually, we're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking how do we identify what these corner four relationships are. But I want to end here. You know, Jim Collins, who is this, along with Henry Cloud, one of my very favorite thinkers, he used to be a professor at Stanford. His work is must-read. In fact, top two or three books ever for me is great by choice. There's some language in in there that we've captured culturally, uh, both here and amongst the staff. And one of the things that he says over and over and over again is it's always about who, not about what. What he means by that is when you look at certain things, the tendency is to think it was the idea that led to the success. So, you know, you could point to... uh, the Ford Motor Company. And it'd be easy to look at the early 1900s and go, oh yeah, the automobile was coming. It was inevitable that it was going to be successful. He goes, no, no, no. If you study the company, what you see is there's a who, and his name was Henry Ford. That's how you explain the success of that company. We look at our phones and we go, oh yeah, the iPod, that was inevitable. He goes, no, no, no. If you want to understand that phenomenon, it's who, it's Steve Jobs. On and on and on. He says, it's always who, not what. We've, we've kind of built a culture around that. We're constantly trying to say, listen, it's not about the idea. It takes a who. That breakfast that we started at Helena Middle School a couple years ago, and then this year at C.R. Anderson, it's a decent idea, but it's not working because of the idea. It's working because Jessica Fisher made it happen at HMS. And Shannon is driving it at C.R. Anderson. The wood splitting thing, I mean, that's been a blast. It's not just the idea. We have a who. The who is Brad Langsether, the open lands manager from the city, who is constantly standing in the gap and making this thing possible for us. This place and all the attributes that you love, I guarantee whatever the aspect is, there's a who somewhere behind it. That's why I stood up here last week and was like, I'm so humbled by the the quality of people that are around here because it's always who, not what. So here's my question. Who are your who's? There's no way to ask that question and sound elegant and sophisticated. But who, who are they? Because you have them. The question is, are they driving you into the gutter? 
or are they pulling you forward to be better? Who are the who's? And is it possible that, that some, of, some of your who's, they're there. You've got the right ones there. But you've just allowed some clutter to form. And suddenly there's disconnection in that relationship. Or suddenly you only want to hear the positive, never the negative. Now that, it's quite possible that there's some necessary endings that need to happen as well in certain relationships. But would you, would you be willing to take some 15-minute chunk, maybe a drive to work at some point, maybe you get up and spend your, your solitude, silence time on this question of just who, who are the who's in your life? And without being too mercenary, how would God have you to deepen that reality? Maybe, maybe as a driver, a motivator, you just look back and look at your own seasons and note your own high water marks and just see, is there, is there a who that you can connect that season to? I'd like to pray for you. Lord, um, relationship, we'd be remiss to not admit that it's, it's where the blessing lies. It's though we are pulled towards and drawn towards lots of other things and lots of other things get us excited. God, we confess to you that it's the relationships that matter. It's, it's the people in our lives who, who make the difference. It's the real fulfillment comes when we get to make a difference in someone else's. And yet, God, that doesn't mean that we also don't have pain as a result of relationships. Lord, I pray that you uh, would draw near in this season as we, for some of this, this is superficial. We're talking about a friendship or a job. Brothers, Lord, this would require that we get pretty deep into a marriage, a partnership in business, maybe even a connection that's just altogether the wrong one. Jesus, thanks that in the midst of all of this, you are the ultimate who. That you didn't come to impose your will on us so much as invite us into your quality of life that can withstand all of life's storms. Thanks for your If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.